John chapter 8. As always, I'm thankful to be here with you this morning, assembled together to worship the Lord. I, I echo what Brother Davis said. Certainly appreciate the song service and the selections. And we turn now to, uh, to open up the Word. We're going to turn to John chapter 8. And we're just going to look at verse 12 this morning, and uh, we're going to set up the rest of the passage for coming messages. John chapter 8, verse 12 says, Then Jesus spake again unto them, saying, I am the light of the world. He that followeth me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. Uh, let's pray before we move forward. Father, we, uh, we thank you for this time that we have together. We thank you, Lord, that you've given us your word, and we thank you for uh, the help that you give us through your spirit. And so I pray that you would be with us. I pray that you would help to open this text up and to apply it to our hearts and um, that we might be drawn uh, closer to you, those of us who, who know you and those who uh, have not yet come to know you. Uh, Father, that you might uh, shine the uh, the light of the glorious gospel in their hearts uh, in the face of Jesus Christ today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So, this uh, text we come to is a is a pretty familiar text. It's one of the seven "I am" sayings in the Gospel of John. In some ways, it's a fairly simple statement. Jesus says, "I am the light of the world." He that follows me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. Augustine said about the Gospel of John, some version of this, the Gospel of John is shallow enough for a child to wade in, and yet it's deep enough for an elephant to swim. We have passages like this that are readily accessible. I am the light of the world, and in our mind's eye, we can grasp somewhat of what Jesus is saying. And yet, the further we wade into what he says, the deeper it gets. Uh, we could spend um, a lot of time trying to unpack and tease out what is said in this uh, short little phrase, I'm the light of the world. We're not going to do that this morning, so you can take a sigh of relief. Um, but but as, we, as we move through John chapter 8, um, I hope to, to continue to come back and, and, and go further into um, what Jesus is saying here. I'm the light of the world. We've been intentional. If uh, if you haven't, if you're a visitor, we've been in the Gospel of John for a while now, and as we've gone through this gospel, you'll recognize if you've been here that we've been intentional about trying to understand the events and the phrases of Jesus in light of significant Old Testament themes and symbols. Um, we we make a mistake if we ignore. Uh, Christ's clear rebuke to the Jews in John chapter 5, 39 through 40, 
when he told them that they searched the scriptures in hopes of finding eternal life, but really the scriptures were those that testified of, of him. And so to try to have deep thoughts about Christ and about the New Testament while ignoring the Old Testament connections uh, will really have a tendency to lead us into maybe creative, eloquent, ultimately nonsense. To view Christ outside of the backdrop of the Old Testament is to misunderstand who He is and what He says. At best, if we take what Christ has to say, particularly in John, John is rooting all of this uh, all of his of, of what's being said in back into some Old Testament theme, and it's easy to see that here. At best, we might land on the correct doctrine from the wrong text, and at worst, we might find ourselves being edified by our own imaginations that are completely disconnected from Scripture. So, if if we look at this in light of the last couple of chapters, uh, we can see it very clearly. So John chapter 6, verse 35, this was, this was the first I am statement. Jesus says, I am the bread of life. And, um, and this statement is directly connected to God's miraculous provision of manna in the wilderness. If we don't have that backdrop in mind, we misunderstand what Jesus is saying here. John chapter 7, verse 37, where we've been... Uh, more recently, where Jesus says, if any man thirsts, let him come to me and drink. We saw that at the Feast of Tabernacles, there was the water ceremony that pointed back to the celebration of God providing His people water from the rock. And the significance that was there and the fact that Jesus is saying this in the context of this water ceremony that would have been going on every day of the um, Feast of Tabernacles and would have heightened on that last day that John 7 says they were in. Well, when we look at John 8.12, we know based on verse 2 that What's happening here happens the day after the last day of the Feast of Tabernacles. Okay, so it's the morning of. And out of the verse, the first 12 verses there, we see Jesus was in the temple teaching. They bring in the adulterous woman. That whole episode is taken care of. And then, um, Jesus goes right back to doing what he was doing before, and that is teaching. We're going to talk about more about this, but what we're going to see out of John chapter 8, verse 12, is that when Jesus says, I am the light of the world, there is a direct connection, a direct illusion to the, uh, the pillar of cloud by day and fire by night that God gave His people during their desert wanderings. Thematically, 
This is what Jesus is connecting himself to when he makes this statement. Um, now, like I said earlier, these themes that Jesus alludes to are rooted into the Old Testament. We get to a theme like I'm the light of the world and the New Testament is going to take that, particularly in the epistles, and even Jesus begins to do this and, and expand upon it. So for instance, in Matthew chapter 5, verse 14, Jesus says, you are the light of the world. Or we see a passage like Isaiah 42, verse 6, that clearly is speaking of Jesus Christ as being a light to the Gentiles. But then in Acts chapter 13, verse 47, Paul takes that same passage and would apply it to the church as being a light to the Gentiles. So, so the New Testament will take this theme. As a matter of fact, you can't even begin reading the Bible without picking up on this light and darkness theme that is throughout the first thing that God does is separate the light from the darkness. And then that imagery will be used again and again and again and again. But let's go back to the, to the text here. And I say all that just to say, you have a big theme. It's developed way more than we're going to develop it this morning. But this morning we're interested in uh, focusing on what is Jesus talking about? What does he mean when he says about himself, I'm the light of the world? It, he that followeth me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. So, during the Feast of Tabernacles, uh, there was a ceremony that was called a, a torchlight ceremony in the court of women that was next to the temple treasury. Now that's helpful because in John chapter 8, verse 20, you find out that this whole discussion happens in the temple treasury. So it's just right next to this women's court. Uh, now during the ceremony, um, this would happen at night. And there were two large uh, like candelabra chandeliers, these huge chandeliers that were full of candles that were lit in the evening. And, and it said that those chandeliers were so bright that they, were, uh, that they would cast light onto every quarter of the city in Jerusalem. That's big. That's, that's huge. Now, the torchlight was a celebration that was meant to commemorate the pillar of fire in the wilderness. As Jesus comes, if John chapter 8, verse 2 is setting our context for us, that he was teaching in the morning, then Jesus is making this statement I am the light of the world. Somewhere between the time 
that these lights are being put out. And the light ceremony for the week of the festival is finished. So we don't have to guess, as just, just to be clear, we don't have to guess what the significance of that light ceremony was. It, it, it clearly was um, the celebration of the pillar of cloud and fire. And it's on the heels of that that Jesus stands and essentially says, I'm the true light of the world. If, if any man follows me, he will not walk in darkness. Now, the question this morning is, what was significant about that pillar of cloud by day and fire by night? That, that special light and, and special, really, protection that God gave to his people. And, and when we look back in the Old Testament, and we're going to look at it this morning, we find that, that there really were three functions of this pillar of cloud by day and fire by night. Uh, it was, number one, a visible sign of God's presence with the people. Number two, it was provision of God's protection. And number three, it was the provision of God's guidance. So God's presence was on display through this pillar. God's protection over the people and God's guidance for the people. John Newton picks up on this in the, uh, the hymn we sang this morning. Um, Glorious things of thee are spoken in verse 3. When he says, round each habitation hovering, see the cloud and fire appear for a glory and a covering showing that the Lord is near. Thus deriving from their banner light by night and shade by day, thus they feed upon the manna when he gives them when they, when they pray. It's this multifaceted look at the Fire and the covering, the cloud and the covering. And so it's a sign of God's presence, a sign of His protection, a sign of His, His guidance, or maybe we should say a means of all those things. And so let's look this morning for a little bit at how this fits. What is it that Jesus is saying? How he's the fuller expression of this. It's, there's no doubt. Just like the manna was miraculous and was unforgettable among the Jewish people, God gave us bread from the sky. That's crazy. It's not something that was a small thing. Just like the water from the rock, was to be passed down and celebrated. Again, God quenched the thirst of a couple of million people by giving them water from the rock. Gushes of water. Tons of water in the wilderness. It's not to be forgotten. And then God makes His presence known, His favor, His protection, His guidance in this cloud of 
pillar of a cloud and fire. So let's go to Exodus chapter 13 and get a pretty good summary here, basic summary. what this was about. Exodus chapter 13, 21 and 22. It says, And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of a cloud to lead them the way. And by night, in a pillar of fire to give them light to go by day and night. He took not away the pillar of the cloud by day nor the pillar of fire by night from before the people. So, number one, this is clearly seen from the text here, that the cloud and the pillar of fire was the visible expression of God's presence with the people. He went before them. He gave them light. He was before the people in this way. That would they know that God was with them. Well, He had done a lot. But He gives them this constant visual reminder that I'm with you. If, if, you, if you question that, all you have to do is look. It's there. It's my presence. It, it dwells among you in a special way that it dwells with no one else. In Exodus chapter 40, we would see that this this visible expression or maybe even visible means of God's presence would would be transferred over to the tabernacle and then the temple. And we see this in verse 34. The tabernacle was completed. It says in Exodus chapter... Uh, 40, verse 34, Then a cloud covered the tent of the congregation, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter into the tent of the congregation because the cloud abode thereon, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And when the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the children of Israel went onward in all their journeys. But if the cloud were not taken up, and they journeyed not till the day that it was taken up. The cloud of the Lord was upon the tabernacle by day, and fire was on it by night, in the, in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. And so this cloud is abiding over the tabernacle. Later, God's Shekinah glory presence is going to be in an intense way between the cherub um, and the holy of holies. But the point of all of this is God's presence is is known among his people you also notice that god's presence and god's glory 
are, are really synonymous. I mean, to see the presence of God is to see the glory of God. God puts His glory on display. Moses says, Lord, let me see your glory. And God said, you can't do that. Essentially, he's saying, Lord, let me see your presence. Let me see you. And he shows them his, his hinder parts. Well, John chapter 1, and we've said before that what we find in the prologue, that is John chapter 1, verses 1 through 18, John will spend the rest of his gospel just expanding on. In seed form, it's all here. John chapter 1, verse 14 says, and, and the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. You see, what John is saying here is just like in the Old Testament when the Lord made His presence known in that pillar, when His glory would fill the temple and His glory would abide over the people. That the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld His glory here. What's He saying? Well, He's saying that Jesus Christ is the visible representation of God's presence to His people, or the visible manifestation of God's presence to His people. When Jesus says, I am the light of the world, part of what's being said there is, if you want to know what God's glory looks like, the brightness of His glory, it's Jesus Christ. This is what the fullest expression of God's glory looks like. It's here. Now, Hebrews chapter 1 would, would bear that out. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1, God who at sundry times and in divers manners spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken unto us by His Son, whom He hath appointed heir of all things, by whom also He made the worlds, who being the brightness of His glory and the express image of His person and upholding all things by the word of His power, and I'm not going to read the rest because I'm looking for the first part of verse 3, that is, Jesus Christ is the brightness of the glory of God. He is the express image of His person. Jesus would say in John chapter 14, verse 9, He that has seen me has seen the Father. Now, if you've been around for a while, none of this stuff is new. Now, you may not have always thought about it as it relates to Jesus being the light of the world, but the, the teachings are not new. But to a Jewish mindset, this would have been ridiculously offensive. As a matter of fact, when we get to the first part of the exchange in John chapter 8, when we get to the end of it, John makes a note that 
somehow Jesus got away with doing all this without even getting arrested because his time had not yet come. Okay, but, but this is big. Jesus is saying, I'm the light of the world. And part of what he's saying, and, and the argument will flesh that out as we get to it in the weeks to come. Part of what he's saying is, is that I am the full expression of the brightness of the glory of God. Any man who follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. As we said earlier, if we think about this and the Gospel of John as a whole, I do think it's a good observation that Augustine makes. It's shallow enough for a child to wade into. I mean, if Jesus Christ is the light of the world, and he's saying that he's the brightest um, visible expression of the presence of God that there is, well, then it begs the question, are you looking to him? Are you coming to God through him? Or, or maybe Second Corinthians might help frame that a little better. Look at Second Corinthians. Chapter four. Second Corinthians chapter four, starting in verse three, Paul says, but if our gospel be hid, it is hid to them that are lost and whom the God of this world hath blinded the minds of them which believe not, lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine unto them. For we preach not ourselves, but Christ Jesus, the Lord, and ourselves your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who commanded the light to shine out of darkness, has shined in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So maybe, maybe we should say, say it this way. If Jesus says that I'm the light of the world... If we take that in light of what Paul says here, that, that God who shined the light into darkness has, in verse 6, shined in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Maybe the question is this. Have you seen Him? Do you know him? Obviously, when I say, have you seen him? Now we're, we're talking about a whole different realm of sight, aren't we? We're talking about blind eyes being opened to see him for who he is. The light of the world. Now I'm going to borrow a metaphor, but. 
Think about kind of what a ridiculous question that is. Have you seen the light? It's like me asking you, have you seen the sun? S-U-N. And the only way that you answer no to that question is if you're blind. The sun is so blaringly obvious, you can't miss it. It's there. That is, unless you don't have sight. Unless you cannot see. Jesus says, I'm the light of the world. That is the fullest visible expression of God's glory. And those who follow me will not walk in darkness. Secondly, as far as the pillar and cloud, again, going back to just how obvious thinking about the Old Testament, the way that God led His people. It was obvious that the cloud of God's presence was Him. His leading, His protecting, His guiding. Well, the second thing that we see in this um, correlation Not only was it the visible expression of God's presence, but it was a a protection for, a covering for God's people. Again, we read it already, but Exodus 13.21, it talks about the, the pillar of cloud by day, fire by night. And just on the outset, it would have provided a couple of things. Number one, and John Newton talks about this in his hymn, number one, it would have provided... Um, shade in the daytime. Okay, this cloud provided shade in the day. Where in this desert, it's said that uh, temperatures of over a hundred degrees were normal. Uh, some commentators even said it would get up into the hundred and forties. Now, that I don't know how you survive in something like that, but. Cloud by day. And then it was also a source of light and warmth by night. So as hot as it could get during the day, it could drop well below freezing temperatures at night. So we have God's presence. We also have God's provisions here. Now, this is just taking the elements and then the implications of the cloud of uh, that would block the sun and the cloud that would be a fire at night or the pillar. But in Exodus chapter 14, we get a, a, a lot more of a, a straightforward way that God uses this cloud of His presence to protect His people from their enemies. If you turn there in Exodus chapter 14... This is when Moses has led the people out of Egypt. 
The Egyptians and Pharaoh have been glad to see them go. And then uh, Pharaoh's heart is hardened. And he goes after Israel. And so as they're on their way, they get to a place to where they're between the Red Sea and they're between Pharaoh's army. And they begin to panic. Um, And then in Exodus chapter 14, verse 19, it says this, And the angel of God, which went before the camp of Israel, removed and went behind them. And the pillar of the cloud went from before their face and stood behind them. And it came between the camp of the Egyptians and the camp of Israel, and it was a cloud and darkness to them. But it gave light by night to these, so that the one came not near the other all night. Then we skip down a couple of verses to um, verse 24. It says, And it came to pass that in the morning, uh, that in the morning watch, the Lord looked unto the host of the Egyptians through the pillar of fire and of the cloud and troubled the host of the Egyptians and took off their chariot wheels that they drave them heavily, so that the Egyptians said, Let us flee from the face of Israel, for the Lord fighteth for them against the Egyptians. So this cloud would separate Israel from the Egyptians, would would protect them as they were uh, running through the night. And then the cloud the Egyptians recognized would fight for the Egyptians. What's that even saying? Well, it's just talking about the Lord protecting His people. The Lord's presence was there as an assurance and the Lord's presence was there as a protection. He was actively fighting on behalf of His people. He was fighting or protecting His people from their enemies. Well, when Christ says that He is the light of the world. Number one, He's the fullest expression of the presence of God. But number two, He's also saying that He is the protector, the covering, the refuge of God's people of all who look to Him. So you can think about this in a couple of different ways. Again, we could go back to the prologue of John. John chapter 1. Verse 16, speaking of Christ, it says, And of His fullness have all we received, and grace for grace. For the law was given by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. Well, what's being said here? At least as we think about what's being said as far as the protection goes. Well, there's a 
clear contrast between the grace that comes through Christ and the law that comes through Moses. The law was good. There was nothing wrong with it. The law was given by God and, and, and to have that revelation of who God was and what God was like and all of those things was good in and of itself. But as far as humanity was concerned, the only thing that we received from the law was the knowledge of sin, according to Romans chapter 3. In other words, when God said um, that we were to worship Him and to worship Him alone, that really acted as a mirror to expose in our hearts how easily and how often we run to idols. When God says, do not covet, it just acts as a mirror. Not to expose that we're not the kind of people who would do that anyway, but to expose that we've been coveting all our lives and we just can't help ourselves. About the time that we recognize one area and we deal with that, we see there's 30 more over here that we weren't even aware of. When he says, don't lie, it's not meant to bring us to the place to where we put our thumbs behind our lapels and say, well, you know, we're not, we're, we're not worried about that. I, I can't stand liars anyway. Oh, sorry. You've been putting up with one big old fat liar your whole life. If you wonder who I'm talking about, take a look in the mirror. It's you. Okay, it was to expose that yes, that's me. And I have fallen short of the glory, the standard that God has set for fellowship and communion with Him. Really, the standard that God has set in order to escape His wrath because this is personal with Him. Well, part of the light, part of the protection that Christ brings for His people, really this is the fullest expression of it, is the covering or the refuge that we have as we look to Him in faith. And as we trust in His shed blood for us to protect us and to deliver us from the wrath of God. You think about Romans chapter 8, verse 1. There is now therefore no condemnation. Brothers and sisters, we live in a world that is full of condemnation. What I mean by that is, is that we live in a world that has the condemnation of God hanging over it. Again, we, the law by the law is the awareness of sin. 
we look at the law and we look at God and the only thing we can say is guilty. And then we look at Christ. And it's through the atonement that Christ makes on the cross for His people that we enter into this state of no condemnation. John chapter 3 would talk about this. So this protection from our enemies, who are we talking about? Well, we're talking about the the world, the flesh, the devil, aren't we? I mean, who's your greatest enemy? Well, in one sense, it's you. It's me. It's your flesh. The reality is, out of James chapter 1, the temptations that the world and the devil would, would hold out in front of us would not be effective at all did we not have a heart that were drawn to those. But then we live with, in a world that's full of temptations. And we have an adversary that is seeking to destroy, devour us. John chapter 3 verse 16 says, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God sent not His Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through Him might be saved. He that believeth on Him is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already, because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And here it is. This is the condemnation that light is come into the world, and men love darkness rather than light, because their deeds were evil. For everyone that doeth evil hateth the light, neither cometh to the light, lest his deeds should be reproved. But he that doeth truth cometh to the light, that his deeds may be made manifest, that they are wrought in God. What's he saying here? Well, he's saying that the one who believes, or synonymously, the one who brings himself into the light is protected from this condemnation. Here's the condemnation. The light has come into the world and men loved darkness rather than light. Well, when Jesus says, I'm the light of the world, what He's saying is, at least part of what He's saying, is that He's a covering. He's a refuge for His people. He's a protection. He is that light of God who fights the enemy of His people. So here's the question. Are you looking to Christ as your refuge, as your protection? Or are you looking to yourself or something else? The world holds out all kinds of lights, all kinds of refuge. One of the realities about these I am statements, if we understand them for what they are, is that Jesus is making exclusive statements. He's saying, I am this and nothing else is. 
Well, we live in a, particularly our society, where truth has become relative and that means more than, and is good enough for more than just, uh, you know, abstract theoretical conversations. This idea that there are many roads that lead to one place, okay, there are many roads that lead to God is the opposite of what Jesus is saying here. What Jesus is saying here is there is one way to be reconciled to the Father, and that's through me. There's one way to have your sins covered, and that's through me. There's one way to be delivered from the wrath of the Father, and that's through me. And so Jesus dispels this idea that, well, as long as you're sincere, as long as you sincerely believe something, or as long as you're a quote-unquote good person, Jesus' response to that is, what is good? Who is good? There's only one who's good. And it's certainly not me. And it's certainly not you. I am the light of the world. That is, I am the fullest expression of God's glory that has been and will be given. I am the light of the world. That is, I am the protection of God's people. The protection for God's people. And then number three, this is perhaps the one you think about most when you think about the uh, pillar of cloud by night and fire by day. Back in Exodus chapter 13, verse 21. This pillar of cloud and fire was the, uh, the visible way that God led His people. It was the visible way that God led His people. The Lord went before them, verse 21, by day to lead them the way, to give them light. Numbers 9, 17-23 would articulate this in a, uh, in a more in-depth way. I'm not going to Read that, but if you want to take note of that, you can. You, you know how this went. When the, when the cloud was still, the people were still. They would be led until it stopped. And they would stay there until it began to move again. And, and as long as they followed the leading of the Lord in this visible manifestation of His presence, then they could be confident that they were going where He wanted them to go. Okay, It was the way He led. Well, 
John chapter 1. Verse 18 says this, No man has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, which is in the bosom of the Father, He hath declared Him. No man has seen God at any time. What does that mean? Well, we've talked about this verse enough for those of you who have been here. I know where I'm going, maybe. When we look at Jesus Christ, we look at the only individual who has first-hand intimate knowledge of the Father based on face-to-face fellowship. No man has seen God at any time. But the only begotten who's from the bosom, that's intimate fellowship, of the Father, He has declared Him. Jesus would say in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. We mentioned this earlier. No man comes to the Father but by me. Christ leads His people to the Father. Matthew chapter 17, you'll remember this. I'm just going to summarize it. Uh, On the Mount of Transfiguration, Peter sees Moses and Jesus and Elijah and he says, it's great that the three three are here. I'm going to build some tabernacles for you. And and then God comes and, and His voice says, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Hear Him. Hear Him. Again, we're thinking about leading. How is it that God leads His people? Well, Jesus, when He says, I am the light of the world, part of what He's saying is, I am the means whereby God's people will be led. It's going to be through Me. It's going to be through what I say and what I do. Hebrews chapter 1, we were there earlier, Talks about all the various ways that God spoke in times past, but says now in these days He has spoken to us through His Son. Now again, these are all, in some ways, these are all basic. Uh, there are some ways you, you think, well, we know all this. What's the big deal about this? Well, brothers and sisters, we do know this. If you've been around church or if you've read Scripture for a while, you know this. But I'm not so sure that we always know the magnitude of what's being said whenever we say that God has spoken to us through His Son. We, we live in a, in, a, in a world where people are willing to give a nod to, yes, you know, Jesus was a, the Son of God and He revealed the Father and what He did and said and was the full expression of His glory maybe. And and yes, when Jesus spoke, it was the words of God. But, you know, I really feel like God is leading me because I've just got this peace, this urge, 
this hunch, this desire, this fill-in-the-blank. God's way of leading His people, the fullest expression of God's way in leading His people, is by giving them His Word and then His Spirit to illuminate what's there. What does it mean to follow Christ? Nineteen times in the Gospels, Jesus would say, follow me, follow me, follow me, follow me. What does it mean? Well, in Luke chapter 9, verse 23... Jesus would say part of what it means is if you're going to follow me, you've got to deny yourself, take up your cross daily. If you don't do that, you can't follow me. In other words, if you're going to follow me, you have to abandon self. And so often we get all that mixed up. So often we can be convinced that to follow Jesus means we do follow self. We follow our hearts. We follow, we, God has gifted us in certain ways and He's, He's blessed me or, or He's, He's given me this passion and He's this, that, and we get it all mixed up. Jesus says, I'm the light of the world. If any man would follow me, he will not walk in darkness. Well, Jesus also says in Matthew chapter 4, verse 4, that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Now, here's an interesting reality. Jesus Christ believed in the authority and sufficiency of Scripture. Jesus could have said, man shall not live by bread alone. But if you just watch me and keep up with me, you'll be fine. No, man lives off of every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Now, this is part of what it means for, think about this as far as light. You know Psalm 119, verse 105. Where the psalmist says, Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. How do you know if you're walking in the light as he is in the light? How do you know that you're following the light of the world? Brothers and sisters, part of that is Scripture. Metaphorically, whenever we're thinking about how darkness is used, a people who set in darkness, it's talking about a people who set in ignorance. Well, how are we transformed from that? Well, Jesus says in John chapter 14 that He's going to send the Comforter and the Comforter is going to lead us into all truth. We know that the Spirit quickens, gives understanding and then we also know that in John 17, 17, that He uses truth. 
That is His Word. To sanctify. To lead. To grow. His people. So whenever Jesus says that He's the light of the world, part of what He's saying is that He is the visible way that God's people are led out of darkness and into light. How is it that you walk in the light by following Him? You see, you could have the Word of God and try to adhere to that all by yourself and still be in darkness. Matter of fact, that's where the Jews are in John chapter 8. They have the Word... Huge portions memorized and they're still in darkness because they don't have Him. You see, the truth is, until you have dealt with your sin, until you have charted a path that says, I will follow Him, I will submit to Him, I'm looking to Him in faith, you're in darkness. One of the reasons why I'm not taking this message aside from time and trying to fully develop this theme of light is because, brothers and sisters, until we've come to the place to where we say that I'm looking to Jesus Christ and Him alone as my access to the presence of God, as my source of protection from God, And as my source of guidance from God, the rest of it doesn't mean anything. It's like giving a blind man a book and hoping he's going to find his way. It doesn't work. And so John chapter 8, verse 12, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Well, It demands a response. I mean, when Jesus says here, He's saying it here, He's not saying it just to say it. And so the question this morning is, as you hear John 8.12, as you hear this claim, this I am claim, are you among those that Jesus speaks of in John 3.19 when He said this is the condemnation that light is coming to the world and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil? All kinds of ways that that's expressed. This whole Jesus thing is kind of fanatical, isn't it? It's just extreme. Sure, he's a good role model. But to say all that? Or, do you find yourself with David in Psalm 39.6? saying, for with thee is the fountain of life, and in thy light shall we see light. Lord, I have seen the light of the world. You have shined the light of the gospel into my heart through the knowledge and the glory that is fully expressed in the face of Jesus Christ. I have seen you. I trust you. I've taken refuge in you. And I want to follow you. You see, when Jesus says, I am the light of the world, that's not some sort of a shallow devotional thought. 
This is an encompassing statement that says you will either respond to this by forsaking self and following me or you will be left to grope in the darkness. How will you respond? Let's pray. Father, we uh, again, we thank You for Your Word. And we thank You for the light of the world. Your Son, Jesus Christ, who has come and who has declared You in a way that no one else ever could have. Father, we thank You for the light. We thank You for Your presence your protection, your guidance. And that all of that comes to your people through your Son. And so, Father, I pray that for those who are here that may have never seen that light before, that you would shine that into their hearts, that you would cause them to wrestle with the reality that either you're coming to the light or your loving darkness. For those who have come to know You, Father, I pray that You would bless us to grow in our understanding of what it means to walk in the light as, yours and as You are in the light. And that we would seek Your face and that we would look to You as the light of the world. Lord, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.